This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk, as I always say. Um, and joining me, as always, is Jamar Tisby, who's the president and co-founder of the Reformed African American Network. Jamar, what's going on? Same old, same old. Actually, it's 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 really interesting. So I finally officially finished my my one year term as interim principal at Midtown Public Charter School. At first, where's generation. the applause? Where's the applause soundbite? You need to <laughs> you need to splice in the applause right here. Well, you know, it's just significant because you know I had other things going, but sort of step back or put those to the side for this full-time position, which which was an, an immense challenge, but at the same time, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Nevertheless, it's, it's nice to have that done. Uh, I'll roll back onto the board of directors after this, but to be able to spend a little bit more time on past the mic and ran is a true blessing. So feeling good about that. Yes. That's huge. And we're very proud of you, uh, brother, for stepping up and making that happen. And at the same time, not neglecting us over here at RAND. So grace to you. Grace to you, brother. How's, how's, how's married life? You're, you're more than one year in. Yeah. Over a year in books getting ready to come out here in a couple of, uh, in a couple of weeks. So you guys can know all the secrets to a healthy godly marriage. So I'm just kidding. (laughs) But, um, but man, it's good. It's uh, definitely been a challenge, but it's been a blessing. And, uh, there have been times where you sit back and you say, man, Lord, you have really given me the grace to just be exposed in, in, in a godly way. You know, some of the, the selfishness and some of the, the issues that I have in my own life that I didn't know before I lived with someone else. <laughs> um, and so that's, uh, that's such a blessing. And uh, my wife is amazing. She's, she's always so gracious. So shout out to Marlene. Both of you getting choked are- up over here, man. Getting choked up. that's good that's good both of y'all are are i mean you were you've been part of the church you're at for a long time so everybody knows her everybody knows you i think um your father who's a pastor uh married you all is this like having an entire congregation of in-laws has that been good is there some drawback Uh, yeah yeah and i think it, it hasn't I mean, it's been good. I think I think everyone, you know, feels like to some extent that they have kind of ownership over certain parts of your life. You know, I think we're you know, we're, we've talked about kids and um, we want that as soon as <laughs> humanly possible. We're we really, uh, you know, just believe in the blessing of children. And yet at the same time, you know, people are lobbying to be godparents and godmoms and, you know, godfathers. And, you know, those types of things are, are natural. And uh, just I mean, that's that's healthy. And I think our church has actually done a really good job after we've been married of, of just supporting us and give us a, giving us encouraging words, but not necessarily um, always volunteering advice. Um, and so that's been really good and that's been really helpful. Okay. All right. Just checking. Just checking. 
Oh Come man, on. it's all good. You know, you know, and there's always people who are going to do that in every church body. That's right. Um, and in every family, you know, they're going to volunteer advice where you don't necessarily ask. But um, I think number one, that shows that they are concerned about us and that they love us enough to do that. But then I think secondly, it shows that you know there is value, and I think I'd rather have people overstepping than That's not right. caring at all. So. Um, you know, just if we talk about the gospel and community, I think that's that's what it, it represents and signifies. So, yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. It's probably better to have a community that's a little over invested than not really having a community at all. Uh, oh, yeah. For you, so, OK, absolutely. Good. Good. I mean, and when you and, and when you grow up in a church, you know, I was there the first Sunday it started. So when you grow <laughs> up in a church. From three to 28, you know, 25 yeah. years, you know, you kind of get it. Uh, so you, I understand where people are coming from, for sure. Well, this is kind of, I don't know, you know, with so much going on in the news, I tr- trust me, folks, we try to plan stuff out far in advance, uh, but there's always something. It's impossible, new. man. It's, it's impossible. impossible. Uh, there's just so much going on in the world right now that it's enough just to pause and acknowledge current events. So I want to pause and acknowledge the three police officers who were who were targeted and killed in uh, Baton Rouge. Our hearts are heavy over Absolutely. that. By the time this comes out, it, it will have been a little while since that event. But, uh, you know, we just we can't keep up on everything. But we do, you know, pause to acknowledge that that any loss of life you know, in a violent manner like that, especially is tragic. Um, yeah. And so much is going on. This is just this is the time. I keep coming back to the fact that the gospel at its heart is about reconciliation, reconciliation first between God and humanity, but then also between neighbors. And we just got to keep reminding ourselves of the fundamental truth that the gospel bridges all kinds of divides. And I do think for Christians, even though in sort of a cultural sense, we're quote unquote, you know, being marginalized or, or losing ground, and co- according to some people, I actually think this is a, an incredible opportunity to preach the gospel at a time when people are more aware of their need for it than perhaps many other times. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's well said. Um, you know, I also want to say that's not justice. You know, what happened in Dallas, what happened in Baton Rouge, those things are not justice. You know, those things are vengeance and and we stand diametrically opposed to any act of violence, um, any act of retaliatory um, rage or vengeance. Um, that's not what we mean when we say justice at all in any way, shape or form. And so for those who are listening who may be involved in the criminal justice system or law enforcement, uh, we pray for you, we pray for your families. And uh, we definitely want to see you get home alive. Yes. And uh, we pray that the Lord would, would keep you safe, even as you um, protect and serve the community. And um, and so I just want to make that very clear that, you know, as we enter into this very contentious um, time where there's a lot of heightened rhetoric and it's very emotionally charged, um, this is not what we mean. And, and we'll, we'll get into what we think uh, about the movement, um, movement for justice and how there's a connection or, or not a connection there. But, you know, we just want to say as, as ran, you know, this is diametrically opposed to the gospel and, um, and we shouldn't necessarily have to say that we don't support violence, but 
um, just as a clear cut repudiation. This is, you know, a hundred percent against what we talk about and what we discuss when we say we want justice for those who are oppressed or disenfranchised. Which you're bringing up a critical topic um, right now. I think people on a lot, you know, different sides of the ideological spectrum are sort of standing off in their corners and hurling stones at one another so that it's a very tense environment, um, particularly along the lines of those who are calling for reform in police practices, uh, policing policies, criminal justice, and those who say that that kind of talk is, is creating a context where violence against police is acceptable. So, I mean, just to put it bluntly, you've got folks blaming uh, the deaths. There were five officers killed and multiple officers injured in Dallas a few weeks ago. And then now three more officers and several others injured in Baton Rouge. And they're mm-hmm. blaming this, this targeted violence against police on folks who are saying in the light of situations like uh, uh, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, they're saying mm-hmm. folks who are decrying those kinds of, of, of killings that are caught on camera, they're actually creating a context where uh, targeted violence against police can flourish. I mean, what do you say to that? Well, I think, I think we've got to be careful about what we're unintent, unintentionally communicating. Um, and the first thing is, well, if you're saying that the premise of this entire discussion is that yeah. the exposure of corruption somehow leads to violent retaliation, what should be the alternative? So if there is corruption, should corruption be hidden or should corruption not be exposed? Uh, and I think we have to be careful about unintentionally saying that, hey, if you guys wouldn't have exposed unjust killings that happened, then then maybe this wouldn't have happened. And we would say, well, well, those two are not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? That, that the unjust killing of someone or the unjust treatment of someone at the hands of law enforcement um, should be addressed and should be prosecuted if it is found to be um, something that is outside of the bounds of what law enforcement is supposed to do. But that to connect that one-to-one with violent retaliation is curious, especially considering that both of the shooters didn't have ties directly to um, what we would call like the Black Lives Matter movement or didn't have ties directly to ideology that is portrayed within that movement, which seeks to reform the criminal justice system and hold police accountable within the confines of the law, which is why there's such a painful reaction whenever there are non-indictments or whenever there are, you know, no charges that are brought or, or lack of convictions, as we saw recently with the Freddie Gray case in Baltimore. So, so I would say that we have to be careful about what we're unintentionally saying here. And this conversation has kind of been backwards because I feel that the conversation surrounding Black Lives Matter for so many people is directly related to the preservation of American ideals and values versus the advancing of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God says, that, that we seek to do justice and we seek to love mercy and we seek to um, defend those who have been oppressed and abused, not at the, not that we're seeking to just keep America what America is, if that makes sense. You know, so, so I think a lot of us are concerned with the preservation of the American status quo 
And so that's why things like Black Lives Matter appear to be threats. And there's historical context to that as well. So, And you mentioned, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because Black Lives Matter is kind of the elephant in the room. It is the most public and national, you could even say international movement yeah. for criminal justice reform that we have right now. And Christians find themselves in an interesting spot uh, in regards to Black Lives Matter, I think, because it's in it's it, it's clearly not a christian organization explicitly um right. you can talk more through this but if you look at their website you know it's not that they're coming from a a standpoint of faith as the motivator for why they want change uh right. sort of nor do they have to you know as nor do they have to, said, right. you know and and but for the christian it's like okay uh if it's if it's not coming from a christian foundation how then do I respond to it? And, and there have been many responses. There's been sort of unequivocal support for it uh, that says this is the movement. We're getting involved and, and let's go. Uh, there's been unconditional rejection of it, mostly because it's not Christian and it's affirming some non-Christian um, unbiblical things about it. Personally, I think I think either of those responses is too easy what we have to do is be. And you've talked about this too. I want to hear your your thoughts. Don't don't hold out on the people. Like <laughs> give us a little snippet of your Black Lives Matter talk, man. I really want yeah. to hear this. So I recently gave a talk uh, in the Race and the Church series put on by some uh, a combination of churches in Richmond, Virginia, and and the title of it was Understanding the Heart Cry of Black Lives Matter. And that title was chosen a year ago. So it's been very interesting to see how this movement has unfolded in the past 10, 12 months. But basically, I mean, at a fundamental level, we have to distinguish between Black Lives Matter, the principle, and Black Lives Matter, the organization, because they're related, but they're two different things. So Black Lives Matter as a principle, I think Christians can get behind because what it is, is simply an articulation of the image of God in people of African descent. And it's an articulation of the image of God in the midst of historical and present circumstances that have defaced that image in black people. And so to say that black lives matter, this is this is critical, right? Because some some people will respond with all lives matter. Uh, some right. people respond by saying, well, if you say black lives matter, then you're devaluing the the dignity of other people. Well, it all depends on what invisible word you put before or after Black Lives Matter. If you hear Black Lives Matter and the invisible word you put in front of it is only Black Lives Matter, then we would disagree with that as believers. Right. Of course, it's not only black people whose lives matter. However, if you put another word at the end of it, Black Lives Matter 2, T-O-O, then that makes all the difference in the world because it's not saying that black lives matter more or less than others, but they matter in addition to because it hasn't been shown in life experiences that black lives do matter as much as the lives of, say, white lives in the United States. So sure. from, from a principle standpoint, if, if we are affirming the dignity of any human being, regardless of their ethnicity or skin color, then when we say Black Lives Matter as a principle, I think that's something Christians can and should fully support because it's biblical. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also really helpful for us to, to talk about history. And so sitting on my iPad lock screen 
is a picture and uh you know I, I wish you guys could see it but you can't see uh, my screen but sitting on my ipad lock screen is a picture of signs from black men um in the 60s that say i am a man yeah and a lot of people don't don't have any connection to what that was and we don't teach that in our in our schools and so because that's not taught in our schools a lot of times we forget the historical context and so we all know that uh, dr king was shot and killed um, in the Lorraine Motel in, in Memphis in 1968, but most people don't know why he was there. And he was there because he was organizing um, a poor people's campaign, actually a sanitation worker strike that was an extension of the poor people's campaign, which was a multi-ethnic, multicultural thrust and push for um, economic equality for all people. And so Dr. King went to Memphis to organize a sanitation worker strike because two men, Echo Cole and Robert Walker, were killed. Um, they were garbage men. And because there was a torrential rainstorm, uh, they were not allowed to take shelter in any of the canopies or the carports in white neighborhoods. So what they actually had to do because of the limited space in the main part of the truck where the other workers were sitting, Echo Cole and Robert Walker actually had to get inside of the trash to shield themselves from the torrential downpour. And unfortunately what happened was something slipped, I think it was a broom or something slipped and it hit the lever and compacted them and ended up crushing and killing uh -huh. them. And so the, the, the heart cry and response to that was that these men would stand, men and women would stand up and would hold signs that say, I am a man. And the, the implication wasn't that I am, we're the only men, the implication isn't that you're not men, but the implication was I'm a man because what it seems as though is we've been treated like pieces of garbage to easily wow. be discarded. Yeah. And so when we see the histor historicity of that protest, which was a powerful statement for justice, for dignity, for humanity, I'm a man, I'm a person, I'm a human being. And when we see that, no one would, well, People did the same exact thing, I'll say that. People did the same exact thing that they're doing now, which is they pointed out what they felt to be inconsistencies in a mere statement of humanity, in a mere statement of we're not less than, we're not subhuman. <laughs> One person said we're not subgroups, right? We're, we're actually living, breathing human beings with, endowed with the image of God. And so when we take a look at what Dr. King was doing in 1968, and connect it to what's going on in 2016, what we see is a connection within the affirmative statements of dignity. And we have to ask ourselves this question for anyone who's repudiating Black Lives Matter, I would say, okay, um, and anyone who is buying into the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter being a terrorist organization, you know, one of the sheriffs, one county over from where I live said that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. Well, I would ask this question, and this is something for us to consider, how has Amer America historically treated those who have spoken boldly for Black dignity and Black humanity? Historically, how have we treated people who have stood up and say, I am, who have stood up and said, I am a man, or they are human beings, or Black Lives Matter, or anything in the equivalent? Stepping on and toes. And the reality is, <laughs> what'd you say? Stepping on toes, Doc. Well, I mean, the reality is, we have treated these people 
from Dr. King, who is now considered the paragon of humanity and equality and civil rights, who was hated in the last year of his life, by the way, who had a 23% white approval rating in the last year of his life, who had a 68% black disapproval rating in his life. So lest we think it's just a one-sided ethnic idea. He was disliked and he was hated while he was alive. But now we think he's a paragon of justice and freedom and equality. And the reality of the matter is we treated him like he was a criminal. Same with Frederick Douglass. Same with Harriet Tubman. Same with all these people who have spoken boldly for black dignity. So this conversation cannot be separated from history. If we separate this conversation from history, we're not only doing ourselves a disservice, but we're actually failing to put this in context to what it really is. And, and nothing new is under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And, and I think the same desire and cry, while it may be different, and while we can critique it for sure, the same cry that was in 1968 is manifesting itself in 2016. You can't ignore that. You're absolutely right, but this is such a complicated conversation if, if, if we don't have the right starting place. So, so talking about like Black Lives Matter and how Christians ought to uh, think about it or engage with it, and I don't think there's one solution, but, but I do think that there is – that we've got to start from a position of empathy, Right. We, we can't Huge. just dive in and critique the movement or the leaders or the platform without understanding where Black Lives Matter, even as a phrase, comes from or why such a movement is even necessary, which connects to the history that you're talking about. We talk often as Christians um, about Black Lives Matter being uh, you know, a statement of the image of God in all people right. and a statement that, that is trying to recover the dignity of black people in the United States. But I think there's another theological dimension to it that we ought to understand, that Black Lives Matter is actually a cry of lament. Um, so That's a huge that. part of your talk. That was a revelation to hear, to hear that. Well, it, it, I, I think it really helps us to understand before we get into the the you know fact versus fact you know point by point uh, of of the platform understanding the visceral emotional response that is Black Lives Matter. So uh, so Sung Chan Ra wrote a book called Prophetic Lament. We got to get him on the podcast, man. <laughs> yeah, we do. yeah, we do. It's so timely. And he says in that book, he says, lament is the bi- lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and suffering. And he goes on to say lament is an act of protest as the as the lamenter is allowed to express indignation and even outrage over the experience of suffering. So so think about the context in which Black Lives Matter as even just a hashtag arose. It was after uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin. Now, mind you, this yes. is a year after the actual death of Trayvon Martin. So they let the justice system play out. And when it came back that this man was acquitted for killing this teenager coming back from a convenience store with with a bottle of iced tea and a bag of Skittles and wearing a hoodie and being black in a predominantly white neighborhood, all of those things that go into, you know, why exactly was he singled out? When the verdict came back, not guilty, acquitted, that's when uh, the the founders um, 
one of them, uh, Alicia Garza, posted on there, our lives matter. And then one of her friends uh, reposted and said, black lives matter. That was the genesis of the phrase. And if we divorce black lives matter from the circumstance of anguish that people of African descent felt at, at, at this this situation where it seemed like justice was not done, then we'll never understand anything about the platform. So I think as believers, we ought to be able to empathize and to understand, and that is different from agreeing. But can we empathize? Can we mourn with those who mourn? And if we start there, I think we'll have a much more productive conversation about what to do next. Yeah, and I think I think also the rhetoric that we use surrounding this conversation must be very careful. And and I think sometimes we have these conversations talking about people rather than to them. And I just encourage you to get to know people who are activists. And and one of the problems is that Black Lives Matter is a pejorative, so it's it's this catch-all for all social activism. Uh, so yeah. if you're if you're you know if you're a social justice activist. Or if you're someone who says, hey, I believe in in a a quality of educational access, or I believe in economic opportunity, or I believe in um, criminal criminal justice system accountability, then now you are Black Lives Matter. And (laughs) there's there's a huge distinction. There's ranges, you know, which is why it's, again, history is so important. Um, and I'm I'm so glad that you're studying history, Jamar, um, so that you can you can make these pleas uh, with the doctor in front of your name um, yeah. in a couple of years. But yeah. it's it's so important because we flattened the civil rights movement to just be Dr. King, and it wasn't just Dr. King. There were a number of different organizations who had a broad range of tactics and who had a broad range of approaches to achieving justice. Now, the vast wow. majority of them were nonviolent. And the vast majority of them were peaceful, but they were peaceful in different ways. Some yes. of them were peaceful for the redemption of the white majority who was watching. Others of them were peaceful for the empowerment of the black people who were suffering. But but there were different approaches. And that's why um, Dr. King's own organization in the last year of his life censured him because they said his entire thrust, which he was uh, approaching poverty, racism, and militarism as well, his entire thrust, they said, was out of step, that he was no longer in step with the movement itself. If you think about it, that's a broad range. So when we say, oh, well, you guys are Black Lives Matter, what does that mean? And when you say that, is it a direct connection to the organization? Or is it just this catch-all that says, if you're speaking out about equality or justice, or injustice in any way, now you are associated with Black Lives Matter. And if that's the case, then man, we can draw all kinds of parallels and connections that may or may not exist. And I feel we wouldn't want to be associated with some of the Christians and some of the churches who wave their banners, the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if that's the case, because some of them are making a mockery of the gospel in the same way that some of the people who are connected to social justice don't have a biblical foundation and don't have uh, a basis for the image of God. So how we even characterize that is also really important too. Well, now, you know, and if, if you've stuck around and you're still listening to this and you haven't shut us off, don't hear us saying that you must either support or deny uh, Black Lives Matter as a movement. So let's get into that. Let's get into that actually practically. What are some ways in which we disagree 
with the approach, tactics, or beliefs of Black Lives Matter, the organization? Man, uh, well, ooh, there's so much to say. But I, I, I still want to talk about a little of the history. Um, okay, keep going, keep going, keep going. If, if we don't understand that, it, right, like if we don't understand why police reform and criminal justice reform is the particular area where Black Lives Matter, the organization, wants to make changes, then it's hard to understand their their positions. So, so there was a recent article that came out by a historian named Carrie Lee Merritt, who studies race and, and labor and things like that. And it's called One Continuous Graveyard, Emancipation and the Birth mm-hmm. of the Professional Police Force. And I thought it was so significant. I just want to read uh, a paragraph from there. It says, following emancipation, the number of people arrested in the Deep South rose significantly as the substance and enforcement of certain laws changed considerably. In stark contrast to the antebellum period, the vast majority of those now now arrested were black. To keep up with the rapid pace of arrests, cities and towns that did not have police forces before the Civil War quickly established professional uniformed forces during early Reconstruction. And she goes on to say, no longer masters, former slaveholders used institutionalized ways to reassert their power. Just as poor whites had been singled out for prosecution for nonviolent behavior crimes in the antebellum period, so too were blacks in the postbellum period. As one one Union soldier stationed in Meridian, Mississippi wrote of the former slaveholders, it is their hope and intention under the guise of vagrant laws, etc., to restore all of slavery, but its name. Wow. And Meridian is my father's hometown. <laughs> wow. Crazy, right? Now, now, wow. you know, people can say that's 150 years ago. It's different now. But let's just understand that for ethnic minorities and black people in particular, the police have very rarely been per- perceived as community servants there to protect and serve. Rather, whether as individuals or just as a force in general, they have been agents to reassert the power of whites in the social hierarchy. Right. And so if that has been, and we can give instance after instance, what you gave in the beginning was, was a great example. Another example, a lot of people don't remember why the march, uh, uh, the Selma march began. It was because an African-American was shot and killed by yes. a police officer under suspicious circumstances. Look up Jonathan Lee Jackson, uh, and it was during a peaceful protest that the, the police who came out in riot gear and, and armed to the teeth, just like today we've seen in, in the midst of peaceful protest, uh, this, this man, Mr. Jackson, ends up killed. And, and in response to that, they put together this march, which turns into a national event and an outcry over brutality against black people who are marching for their rights. So 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 that's much more recent history, but you got to understand there's a legacy that comes with that. What do you think happened to to to, to Jackson's family when they saw yeah. that? What about the rest of the country when they see, you know, fire hoses and dogs unleashed on unarmed men, women and children? All of that bears an impact to the present day which lends credence to the cry that black lives matter because historically they haven't and so i just cannot emphasize enough the study of history to build empathy and the you know in uh there are probably some pastors out there some seminary students who are studying greek 
there's there's a there's a grammar tense called the perfect tense which you know it all depends on the context but in general the perfect tense says an action in the past has ongoing effects into the present well we need to understand civil rights and racial justice in the perfect tense that actions in the past events in the past have ongoing effects right on up to the present day mm, man and then we also take into account the the recent quote unquote war on drugs the era of mass incarceration, and then this idea of super predators that was pushed. <laughs> so we're talking about a universal, we're talking about a two-party problem here, not just you know a problem for Republicans or a problem on the right, but a problem from Democrats as well, uh, um, falling into this systemic uh, racism and this systemic injustice, which has led to even a furthering of the community's perception of police, not as servants, but as the, the extension of the arm of a government that does not seek to understand them and does not um, apply mental health and does not give them economic opportunity or educational equality. And those things create this cocktail where even recently, so if we, you know, some people would say, well, that's the six, 60s. Well, let's talk about recently, you know, and, and what does it do to someone to have Black death easily accessible at their fingertips, mm -hmm. like we talked about a few episodes ago? You know, when you have that easily accessible and when you see that no one is brought to justice, well, what does that make you feel as though? Does that make you feel as though you are worth something or does that make you feel as though there are two Americas, as Dr. King would say, one for those who are well off or in a, in a certain ethnic strata and then another for you, you know, an ethnic minority. So all that must be taken into account as we're critiquing and the empathy portion should be built in relationships with people, but I fear that sometimes we look at relationships with people um, in a weird way, and we'll get into that in a second. We'll get into that in a second, but but I don't want to I don't want to jump the gun. Right, um, but we yeah. look at those <laughs> we look at those relationships in a weird way. But we'll we'll get into that later. But um, okay. but I think that's so important. And I I feel like I don't, I don't I wish I didn't have to do this, but I feel like we should reiterate. Empathy and understanding is not the same as agreement. So you, you can walk away from listening to this podcast and still say, you know, I'm never going to use the hashtag Black Lives Matter. I'm never going to wear a T-shirt. I'm never going to march with them because it's just too far away from right. what I believe as a Christian. That's fine. Uh, or you could do all of those things. I think at the very least as Christians, we ought to understand this is coming from someplace. And then hopefully that'll soften the edges about how we interact, even if we disagree. And this isn't just for Black Lives Matter, is it? This could be for any issue, yes. any political, yes. social issue that's highly charged. We all should be starting from a standpoint of humility to listen, to understand the heart cry behind a person's stance. We need to, I think, ask a lot more questions than, than make assertions. Uh, I, I think even in our tone on social media, we ought to be very careful if we want to commend the gospel to people who don't yet believe it. So I think I just say that because we spent all this time talking about the history, talking about talking about understanding uh, where where black people and their allies are coming from, expressing the hurt and the pain. And Tyler, I'm sure you and I can both tell personal stories. Uh, about how this has affected us in our individual lives. And, and if you have black friends, I know they can tell the same thing. But we're doing all that. And I hope folks hear us to say that love has to undergird 
all of our interactions, even when we disagree for disagree with folks. Can we can we truly affirm the image of God in people by emphasizing, which means feeling with them, not feeling for somebody, but feeling the pain of a black person when they see yet another person with somebody who looks like them, maybe in their same social position, uh, literally seeing the life drained out of them on camera, you know, and then, and then how do you respond? So, but all that to say, there are some profound differences. Well, and I think, okay, so as we enter into differences or as we just touch on this briefly, I think it's important to remember that again, when we say black lives matter, that means different things to different people. So someone would say, well, go to their website and you will see what they believe. And I would say from an organizational standpoint, yes. But the organizational uh, standpoint and structure and leadership structure of the founders is heavily decentralized from everyone who tweets. So there is no universal Black Lives Matter manifesto that everyone has agreed to before they join in with the movement. What is understood about Black Lives Matter is that it is um, a rally cry and a protest movement for police accountability, specifically in the area of underprivileged uh, communities and also uh, Black lives that have been taken unjustly and placed in front of the camera without indictment or without any sort of recourse or accountability. And then there are dozens of names that have been mentioned and turned into hashtags, but there is also disagreement about tactics in every single chapter of Black Lives Matter. I can't emphasize this enough that while there may be some overlap with the idea and the empathy and the desire and the frustration, that there are differences based upon each individual locale. So for some people, their thrust may be um, addressing this issue not by blocking the interstate freeway, but by going to on their city council and lobbying for educational reform that'll open up more opportunities for young black men and women to get out of these areas where they will be profiled and where they will be stopped and pulled over. Um, for other people, this may be a healthcare thing. For other people, this may be a mental health understanding element. And for other people, they are rallying for greater police accountability in areas such as body cameras, in anti-bias training, There's a lot that goes into this. So it's heavily decentralized. So I want to be very clear about tactics, because when we say Black Lives Matter, it's easy to just put it all in one bucket, even within the organization itself. And and there there are some critiques of their decentralized nature of their leadership. But that is the reality of it. So Black Lives Matter in Pensacola, Florida is different from Black Lives Matter in Jackson. It's important to to point that out. And and it's also important to point that out that. to the extent that there is, you know, intentional leadership, at least the folks, you know, putting um, the positions on the website, they're responding in in a lot of ways to what they perceive as shortcomings in the historic civil rights movement of the 20th century. So huge. Yeah, that's part huge. Of, part of the rationale for being decentralized is that they saw the drawbacks of having these prominent leaders who were looked to as leaders of the entire movement, such as Martin Luther King, who, um, yes, were brilliant spokespersons for it, uh, mobilized people in, 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 in all kinds of ways. 
But the drawbacks were, number one, the movement was still incredibly diverse. And the civil rights movement, all, all the people involved weren't the sort of MLK type of civil rights right. uh, workers that he was. But also because if you have that particular person or that particular face, it makes it very easy to knock that person off. And you kill the very leader. True. And the movement itself flounders. So they're they're decentralized on purpose. And then some of the things that uh, Christians, Bible believing Christians, will have real strong issues against in terms of uh, the platform. And it says this on the website right there: it's transgender affirming and it's queer affirming. Now mm-hmm. I think it's important. Like when Christians hear that, we're like, nope, we are for biblical sexual ethics. Period. We can't get behind that. I understand where you're coming from. I just want to give a little bit of context to that. So it'll say this on the website, too, that Black Lives Matter means all Black Lives Matter. And so this is, again, a response to what they see as shortcomings in the historic civil rights movement. The civil rights movement of the 20th century centered and put forth black men as the prominent leaders of the movement and gave very short shrift to the women who were part of the movement, who did much of the groundwork and the grassroots organizing, the getting out, beating the streets, knocking on doors, getting folks to register, all those things, organizing, fundraising, women were a massive part of that. And, and, and also homosexuals were part of it. Uh, uh, there, were, there were prominent, there were, there were homosexuals who were, who were involved in the movement, doing very important things, but because socially, it was absolutely forbidden to to uh, be publicly homosexual. They didn't they didn't um, they didn't acknowledge those those folks' uh, contributions to the movement. So Black Lives Matter right. comes along and says we're not going to do the same thing. If we say Black Lives Matter, we see we say everyone, transgender, homosexuals, and women. And so I'm not saying that to agree with with their stances. I'm saying that it's not coming out of just this liberal social agenda as some people would characterize it. But in fact, they're actually trying to, to right some of the wrongs that they saw, not only in the civil rights movement, but but subsequently the black power movement. So right. again, history helps us, again, not, not necessarily agree, but to understand. And then there's also this perceived violence that happens to trans and queer lives that people also, that they're also very sensitive to because of their own experience as, you know, some of them are either affirming or, participants in the LGBTQ lifestyle, but then also there, there are other people um, who they've seen that have been devalued as less than based upon their sexual orientation. So and I think a lot of that is, is a compensation for um, those things that they've seen. This is going to be uncomfortable for some Christians, but it shouldn't be. We ought to unequivocally affirm the dignity and worth even of transgender or homosexual people. That, that's, that's not even yes. a question for believers uh, because our affirming their dignity and their, 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 uh, their being made in the image of God is not contingent upon our, their perceived righteousness, right? right. It, you can be a sinner and still be made in the image of God because guess what? All of us are. So, so by, in a sense of transgender affirming and queer affirming, if we're affirming their image of godness, 
and the fact that even if we disagree with their choices, that they are worthy of dignity, respect, that they shouldn't be bullied, abused, killed because of those choices, then I'm, right. I, I can affirm that too. Um, but we cross the line, I think, as believers, if we approve of what the Bible would, would, would characterize those choices being sinful. We cannot approve of sinful distortions of the sexual pattern that God puts out, but that at the right. same time doesn't mean that we should uh, devalue or disrespect people who make those choices. Right. Absolutely. And then I think there's there's also, you know, language that we would disagree with as far as if you affirm the LGBTQ lifestyle or or group of people, that's one thing. But then I think to attack what, you know, we would say is a nuclear family structure yeah. and to attack, you know, the husband, one man, one woman, uh, you know, for, for one life. I think I think that would be something that we would differ in. I think that Absolutely. that would be something that we would take a step back and say, well, the extent to which we would affirm that, even in affirming your humanity and even in affirming your dignity. And so that does give us cause to pause in some ways. Well, yes, it does. And so this, this is probably the, the most confusing statement to me on their website is that they, they say they're, they want to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. And then they go on to basically say, we, we believe it, you know, in a village that extended families and, and local communities all have a part to play. I don't, I don't really even know what that means, to be honest. With right. You. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's you know, left up to interpretation for sure. Yeah, it, it could be, it, you know, the most generous reading of it could be, it takes a village to raise a child, which Christians would affirm. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm Presbyterian, and uh, uh, when babies are baptized, the congregation raises their hand and makes a commitment to participate in raising the child and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so from that standpoint, this child is a child of the covenant, is a, is part of the covenant community, and everyone has a stake in raising that child to be healthy, not only socially, but spiritually too. And from right. that standpoint, yeah, I'm all for going well beyond the nuclear family to, to form a context in a community where a child can flourish. But if what they mean by disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family, number one, it's not Western prescribed, right? The nuclear family is God's idea where exactly. a man, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. All right. So that's 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 a man and a woman in a in a, in a covenantal conjugal relationship. And then he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That is a command to to have babies who are given as a blessing um, and to raise them with a mother and father. That's a God prescribed thing, not a Western prescribed thing. Right. And then I don't think the two are truly exclusive. You why exactly. wouldn't you be able to have the traditional nuclear family? And still have an extended family uh, that that helps you, whether that's a, a spiritual family through the church or your biological family or both, that helps in raising that child. So I don't know what they mean at the end of the day, but if they want to disrupt God's pattern for raising children and a husband and wife, being, I'm totally opposed to that. If they're simply saying that, you know, we have to think of family in broader terms um, and, and not completely do away with the nuclear family 
okay, but it's right. just a confusing statement to me. I think the way they worded it, it makes it seem like either or when it, you right. know, it doesn't need to be that contentious. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be unpacked as far as standing for the justice of, of humanity and dignity as it relates to police accountability and as it relates to the criminal justice system and unpacking someone's views on sexuality. And I think there's a lot to, there's a lot that I believe you can stand next to someone and affirm their, their demands and their um, platform for police accountability and not necessarily agree with them <laughs> in the sexuality portion of their platform. And I, and I think, you know, this whole concept of partnering with people who we may disagree with in certain areas is something I think we do all the time. Um, I think when it comes to Black Lives Matter in particular, we have a certain reticence for other reasons, um, not just because they disagree with us in the area of human flourishing and the area of sexual orientation, but I think it's, it's, it's deeper than that. So, I, yeah, I, I just think I think you can stand next to people in as much as they affirm human dignity and in as much as they, you know, are, are because I think here's 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 the, the, the great danger is that the church would concede ground where people can be won to Christ. And and I think too many in the church have pointed fingers and said, look at those people. It's like, well, these people and, and, and some of the, the language and rhetoric that has been used about them is that they are subhuman and that they are race baiters and that they're adjust- And that's why the language we use is so important, because it dehumanizes uh, someone who has been created in the image of God, one, and number two, a person that the church should evangelize and a person that the church should reach out to. And how do we come alongside of people and provide resources that fuel what we can agree on? But at the same time, preaching the gospel to them um, in a way that is both affirming of their concerns and empathizing with them without compromising who we are. Well, you're bringing up this idea of of common grace, um, which is a thoroughly biblical and reformed idea that. Well, okay, so, yeah, break that down, because some people are going to be like, what do you mean by common grace? And (laughs) they don't understand the whole sacred secular conversation. Right, 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 right. So, so the rain falls on the just and the unjust is what the Bible says. And, and in that context, it's saying rain is life-giving. It, it grows your crops and, and it blesses you with food. And uh, the, it, it's saying rain falls on the just and the unjust, meaning God will bestow blessings uh, on people who don't even believe in him. And right. Common Grace says that that applies to all kinds of different areas, meaning that an unbeliever can stumble into God's truth. I mean, uh, the, the the heavens are telling the glory of God, and uh, all of nature speaks to the fact that we have a creator and that, that, that he has a pattern for life. And so even an unbeliever, uh, by living in the world and being observant and trying to be wise, can can say true things. For instance, black lives matter. That is right. true according to the Bible because of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And you don't actually have to be a Christian to be able to state that. So Common right. Grace says there are going to be folks with whom we profoundly disagree at a fundamental level who are yet and still saying true things that align with the Bible. And this is, this is where the rubber hits the road. 
okay, if that's the case, can we, in some areas where folks are affirming biblical truth, can we partner with them? And I think that's where a lot of Christians are struggling right now. So, you know, for or instance, what is the extent to which we can partner with them? Because the that's, extent, yes. that's a more nuanced question, right? So some people would say, don't be involved in, in Black Lives Matter. And I would say I'm not involved in Black Lives Matter, the organization. I'm not connected to a chapter, but I know people. And if they asked me to be on a panel, I would join the panel. Or if, if we showed up at the same event, I wouldn't leave because they were there. Right. So so then it's the extent to how much do we how much do we align with them or how much are we seen with them without necessarily being a part of the organization itself as a you are officially, quote unquote, card carrying member of this organization or you use the hashtag or you use this or you say that, you know. And this is the part where, you know, people lean forward in their seats and they're like, what's the answer? Tell me what to do. And personally, I got to say, well get used to disappointment because <laughs> I think this is the area where uh, Christian liberty, charity, and wisdom comes in to play. I don't think there's one uh, one response that all Christians ought to have toward Black Lives Matter, the organization. Why? Because it is a decentralized organization, and, and it is a chapter-based network, loosely affiliated, like you said before. The movement in Pensacola and the organization, the chapter in Pensacola is going to be very different from one in Jackson or Boston or, 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 or anywhere else. And so what, what, what I'm thinking of, and this, this kind of riffs off of a uh, blog post Anthony Bradley did recently, but basically saying it's local. Uh, the, the best activism is really at a local level. Now, he's not yes. talking just about Black Lives Matter. He's talking about politics. He's talking about local city government, all those kinds of things. But what that's getting at is the idea that justice and reform must be contextual because not every answer is going to be equally effective in every context. So you've got to get to know your own city, your own community, the movement that's happening where you are. And right. make judgments based on that, because you could be in a city where the Black Lives Matter representatives are all about, you know, queer affirming, transgender affirming. They will not back down and they won't even let you at the table, uh, you know. Unless. Rather, yeah. And we talked about that before. Yeah. Right, right, right. Or it could be. And this is, I think, often the case. Uh, folks involved in Black Lives Matter are clergy people, they're church people or they're they're unbelievers who are willing to listen to you and even if you can't get on the platform with them or march with them can you form a relation with relationship with them can you understand them and hear them out and maybe form a bridge to where they can hear you out for the cause of the gospel so you know there's no one blanket uh statement i think that that here's how christians should get involved or should not get involved or to what extent they should get involved with black lives matter as an organization i think what we're advocating on this show is understanding both from a historical and a theological perspective about why black lives matter as a principle is important and something we can affirm and maybe because we have that empathy to think a little bit more critically and from an informed perspective about Black Lives Matter, the organization. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. And I think we should give charity to people who are on both sides of that discussion.
and um, who are on both sides of that fence, so to speak. So if people well, are saying, hey, I'm, I've, I've partnered with Black Lives Matter in this, well, we we pray and we find out not just um, the ways in which we can avoid uncharitable descriptions of them, but we also find ways in which we can support them um, and empathize with them practically and tangibly. And then for the people who say my conscience will not allow, um, we don't degrade them either. Right. You know, we right. say um, we we say amen and we totally understand. And that doesn't make you less of a of a of a, a member of a social justice cause. And it doesn't make you right. a violator of Micah 6, 8 and Isaiah 117 and uh, these other scriptures. But, you know, as long as you are contending for these issues in your way, I would say, um, don't don't allow your views on Black Lives Matter to trip you into inaction. You know, uh, don't don't allow this to 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 lead you into a place of apathy because we sit here and and we're contending whether or not um, this can be an open ended conversation. And there's no easy answer as more things continue to come out and more things. Uh, you know, Black Lives Matter is a is a organization in its infancy. So it's very easy to get caught up in the open-ended conversation and then look up three or four or five years down the line and do and you've done nothing to advance the cause of people who feel as though they're marginalized and you've done nothing to affirm the dignity of your brother and sister and, and your neighbor and even your enemy. So I think those things are, don't let this trip you into, into this holding pattern where you're just simply sharing, you know, uh, takes and opinions about this, but you're not getting out there and putting your feet to the pavement and saying, how can I meet my neighbors and how can I love my community and, and how can I serve the people around me with the gospel, even where we disagree um, and, and even where we agree. That that's, that's would be my one caution. But if you choose not to get involved with Black Lives Matter, you don't use the hashtag. I was telling the pastor a couple of weeks ago, I'm not trying to make you an activist. Um, I, I don't, I, that's not what I'm trying to make you. But I will say that that there are real concerns and hopefully you will press into those even if you distance yourself from the organization itself. Well, I think one thing to acknowledge is that, um, you know, in my view, Black Lives Matter is probably the most prominent justice movement right out, out there right now, but it's not the only one. So, I mean, can you tell us, we're running up on time here, but real quickly, can you tell us about the AND campaign? Yeah, the AND campaign, uh, which was started by uh, Amisho Baraka, who's been on the podcast, and also Justin Gibney, who is a uh, delegate for the Democratic National Convention uh, there in Atlanta. Uh, they started it, and it is basically trying to balance compassion and conviction. So it's trying to balance the idea of empathy and also refusing to compromise on the gospel and on gospel ideals and values. Um, so they they take a, a holistic approach to so social justice from womb to tomb. Um, and there are different chapters and people who are starting chapters in their cities. Um, and then there are also opportunities to support them by buying t-shirts and things of that nature. So I believe it's ncampaign.com or .org. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, I'll look that up. But if you follow the AND campaign on Twitter, if you follow uh, Show Baraka or Justin Gibney, there's a lot of great voices and people who are coalescing around that movement. And uh, so if there's a way that we can support even the Christian interpretation and understanding of, of holistic uh, social justice and being pro-life from, from womb to tomb, I say absolutely amen. 
and I appreciate what they're doing 100%. I went to their launch, as I told you guys a few episodes ago, and it was encouraging. It was very challenging um, and also uh, edifying to see other brothers and sisters who are really committed to this. So hopefully that takes flight and hopefully it gets national attention, even as we seek to advance the cause of Christ. Yep. And I'll just mention two other organizations uh, right quickly. There's Campaign Zero. Um, and on their website, they say we can live in a world where the police don't kill people. And they want to do that by limiting police interventions, improving community interactions and ensuring accountability. And if you click around on their website, they have specific policy proposals and ways that you can get get involved. Another one is called the Equal Justice Initiative. Folks may have heard of Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson. He's an African-American lawyer working to exonerate prisoners on death row in particular. Uh, and he's, he's been successful literally saving people's lives who were innocent uh, but were on death row before, before he got involved. They have four main initiatives. One is race and poverty. Two is children in prison. Three is mass incarceration, and four is the death penalty, and they've got specific ways that they want to reform in those areas. The last one I'll mention is actually a conference. This is coming up in uh, September over Labor Day weekend. September 2nd through the 4th is the LDR weekend, Leadership Development and Resource Weekend, which is part of a movement of men and women, ministry leaders, volunteers, pastors, and church families who desire to address the core concerns of black communities. The conference content is designed and presented by African-Americans. People of all ethnic backgrounds and denominations are welcome to attend, especially college and seminary students and those considering higher ed who want to fellowship with like-minded believers or be connected to mentors in the faith. I always say I've been involved with LDR Weekend for the past five years. It is much more like a family reunion than a conference. You're going to run into like-minded believers who are theologically informed and, and biblically sound, but who want to see justice reform and concrete changes in the way our country lives and treats people of color in particular. So uh, go to LDRweekend.com. That's September 2nd through the 4th. Tyler, you're going to be there, I think. I'm going to be there. Yeah. Uh, we're going to try to get everybody from RAN uh, as far as staff there so you get a chance to meet us and interact. And it's, it's just a good time. So go to LDRweekend.com and register for that. Awesome. Also, if you guys have questions, I think we're not going to be able to uh, answer all your questions on one podcast. But if you have questions or maybe some some areas where we haven't been as clear um, about Black Lives Matter, just send those to us on Twitter. Um, I'm at Burns23, Jamar's at Jamar Tisby, and then Pass the Mic is at underscore Pass the Mic. So send those to us. We'll answer them on future podcasts. All right, man. Good conversation. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate you guys. You have been listening to another episode of Pass the Mic, the official podcast of the Reformed African American Network. I have been your host, Jamar Tisby. Tyler Burns is my co-host. We've been talking about Black Lives Matter and the Christian response. Follow all of our content. Visit the website, rannetwork.org. That's R-A-A network.org. Check us out on Twitter, at rannetwork, as well as the Pass the Mic uh, Twitter feed, at underscore Pass the Mic. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com.
This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.